Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley... April is a significant time for many major religions. Today is the fourth day of Ramadan observed by Muslims worldwide. Ramadan begins just as Christians finish their celebration of Easter. And Jews concluded the eight days marking Passover. But because of the coronavirus, these observations were without the familiar settings and rituals. What's more, COVID-19 has stirred deep conversations about faith among believers, and among non-believers, questions about the search for meaning in a pandemic. We're exploring all this in a special one-hour discussion with the people others turn to for answers. Joining me remotely, Reverend Gloria Whitehammon, co-pastor of the Bethel AME Church in Boston, the Schwartz resident practitioner in ministry studies at Harvard Divinity School, and a retired pediatrician. Welcome, Gloria. Thank you. Rabbi Jeffrey Summit, director of the New Hebrew College Innovation Lab, research professor in the Department of Music and Judaic Studies at Tufts University, and senior consultant for Hillel International. Hi, Jeff. Hi. So good to be with you. Dr. Celine Ibrahim, faculty member in the Department of Religious Studies and Philosophy at the Groton School, former Muslim chaplain at Tufts University, and author of her forthcoming book, Women and Gender in the Quran. Hi, Celine. And it's a pleasure to be with you. And Greg Epstein, humanist chaplain at Harvard University and MIT, author of the New York Times bestselling book, Good Without God, and a contributor to TechCrunch. Thanks for joining us, Greg. Thanks, Callie. This is uh, a privilege to be with you all. So I want to start with those of you who are with organized religion and ask how you fared changing the rituals and the tradition of these high holy observances this month and what that was like for you. Reverend Gloria, I'll start with you. Sure. Well, like so many other communities of faith, we have switched pretty quickly to online worship services, Bible studies, group meetings. I will say it's been a lot of work trying to make sure that all of the pieces are in order, much more work than just doing a regular service. That said, having done that, we have a significantly increased number of participants on a given Sunday. For Easter Sunday, we for us, a big number of 2,200, and it seems like we're settling now around 1,400 with a usual attendance of about 350. So that's mm-hmm. very significant. And in general, people have received it well. We're on Zoom like so many other people, and again, with robust attendance. Rabbi Summit, how was Passover? 
Oh, it was a Passover like no other Passover. You know, the seders are home rituals where you really discuss and go deeply into the story of the liberation and the exodus from Egypt. And let's just say there was great material for discussion this year. But being on a Zoom seder, we did it with 30 of our closest friends and our family. It's very different from being face-to-face with people. And often the best part of the seder is the family celebration around it, cooking together beforehand, the post-seder recap the next morning. And we very much missed that part of the holiday, even though seders work pretty well on Zoom. Dr. Celine, much of what Rabbi Summit and Reverend Gloria have said about the gathering didn't happen and it's not going to happen in Ramadan. That's a big part of the Ramadan celebration. That's real, really observance. So talk to me about... How different that feels to you? Certainly a major part of Ramadan is being able to get together with friends and family and other Muslims and even the wider community to be able to you know, extend that Ramadan spirit. And it's it's different this year, but there are some um, potential advantages in that Ramadan is supposed to be a month where you spend more time with the Qur'an, and given that some of us are finding that we have more time at home and quiet time to read, that's one of the silver linings, potentially, of this situation. There's also a practice for the last 10 nights of Ramadan to find a place in a mosque and remain in the mosque for those 10 days. And for people who have jobs in the outside world that doesn't stop for Ramadan, That could be quite challenging on a normal year, but perhaps more people this year will be able to do that practice, not in a mosque, obviously, but uh, potentially in in their homes. And Greg, switching the conversation now to a little bit broader, what some of the recent surveys have shown is that people are searching. So they found themselves anchored in some of these major holy observances through organized religion. But people who are non-believers are out there searching, looking for some answers to make them feel anchored in this moment. And what, as a humanist, are you hearing from the people that you would communicate with about these issues? Thanks, Kelly. Yeah, there's a lot of searching going on, which I think is pretty healthy, but there are more and and less healthy kinds, perhaps. I'll first say that I feel connected to these holidays myself in many ways. I'm very much culturally Jewish personally and actually ordained as a secular humanist rabbi. I I have worked with uh, Rabbi Summit a little bit uh, maybe a decade ago when he was at Tufts uh, at Hillel. And my wife really felt motivated to put on a, a big Seder for myself and her and uh, our small son. Oh, really? And, yeah. And, oh. and, you know, we had my mom on Zoom for one Seder. And then because her parents do the, the Seder very differently, we had their family on, you know, an hour or so later. And really, by the way, by the time it got to Easter, I, I was reflecting on the fact that, you know, normally I wouldn't really go out of my way to say, like, happy Easter to those who are practicing because, I don't know, it, it just doesn't feel all that genuine. It just, like, I, I avoid, I try to avoid, like, platitudes sometimes because even though I, I, I mean it, it just would feel a little too much. But this time when Easter came, I, I found myself, like, really wanting to wish all of my friends who are celebrating Easter a happy Easter. Like, I was really invested in the idea that you would have a happy Easter and I think I feel the same way now about Ramadan. At this point, for me, part of the searching process, even in my own life as a humanist, and certainly for 
unaffiliated people is the fact that you recognize that we're all in this together. Nobody, myself or ourselves included as, as humanists and the non-religious have all the answers to this situation and to celebrate one another's joy and, and one another's ability to find meaning is, is profound for me. I think that the biggest strength and the biggest weakness for members of my own humanist, atheist, agnostic, non-religious community is that we can sort of look wherever we want, wherever we feel is most meaningful to us to find our inspiration, to find our strength, to find our hope. The strength in that is that there's a lot of options. There's a lot of possibilities. We get to really remind ourselves there's no one right way to do this. The weakness, of course, is that sometimes it really does help to feel moored and grounded in a, in a set of traditions that is the tradition for this day. And, and you know, rightfully or understandably, we have a little less of that, but we're, we're figuring it out as we go. I'm interested now from all of you to find out what you are hearing, because a Pew poll at the end of March showed that 82 percent say a majority of Americans have prayed for the end of the coronavirus. Thirty six percent of those people say they don't have any religion in particular, but they still kind of sort of prayed. And 15 percent of those who generally don't pray say they prayed because they felt like they should. Now, they also have something else that's interesting to me. There is an Oklahoma-based Life.Church created online platform, and the searches for fear went up 167%. So I was looking at all of that, and I wondered, what are, in general, the kinds of questions being addressed to you as people pray, some, and others obviously quite fearful in this time and are seeking an answer through their prayer? Reverend Gloria? Sure. Well, I'd say people are afraid, and I'd say especially post-Easter. I'd say in the wake of that, I'm hearing a sense of weariness, and the uncertainty is beginning to wear on people's spirits. Our congregation is largely African-American, and in several of the group meetings, in one meeting we had about 40 people, and there was virtually nobody who did not know someone who was either afflicted or had been affected by COVID-19 in terms of a, a family member or a dear friend. So there's also the kind of grieving that goes along with that. And so there are the, the anxiety and there's also the fear. People certainly are turning to some of the traditional pillars, so text, music, and certainly in the community itself. There, I wouldn't say that I've heard a questioning of God and why is God doing this so much as wanting to understand what we can gain from this. What can we, how can we redeem these moments? And again, in the context of feeling afraid and anxious. Dr. Gloria, are, do you think that the people who are afraid and anxious feel certainty then? If they're not questioning why is God doing this in this moment, as some are, do they feel certainty in their faith that somehow this is going to be how I manage this? Now, I can say for people that I've talked to at this point, there still is a confidence that God will see me through. Some of this, of course, is rooted in the African-American experience, having been through all that people have been through. Uh, having survived the generations of, of racism, et cetera, there is a, a sense in which if God has seen us through all of that, then he will see us through all of this. 
So I'm reminded of Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Right. And there's another text, if I might offer it in, in, in Hebrews, that says, that reminds people of how we've been through tough times before, and we don't come from people who shrink back the people who persevere and have faith and are saved. And I, that has been something that people have held on to as well, again, in the context of, a, of the history. That's my guest, Reverend Gloria White-Hammond. She's co-pastor of the Bethel AME Church in Boston. A Rabbi Summit, same question to you. What are you hearing? What are the questions, if there are questions? And is anybody asking you, why is this happening? Yes. You know, Callie, for us in the Jewish tradition, Prayer is so much about community and takes place in the context of community. I mean, people pray individually, but we do our best prayer in a minion when 10 people are gathered together. And when people say, why is God doing this? This is not at all where I would look for God in this crisis. I don't believe that God is found in the coronavirus. This is a natural thing that happens. Viruses happen in the natural world. We don't look for God in that crisis and tragedy. We look for God and we find God in the amazing ways that people are responding to this crisis. We look for God in the healthcare workers and all the human beings who are out there being selfless and generous. We look for God in the way that people are watching out for their neighbors and all of a sudden coming into community in ways that they haven't before of virtual communities online. If they're very carefully social distancing and going for a walk, saying hello to people who they've never said hello to before. You know, Martin Buber had this sense that God happens in the place between human beings who are in true contact with one another. And I think that's where I look for faith in my concept of where God is to be found. So Rabbi Summit, are people questioning their faith itself, not questioning why in this greater sense of why God did this, but are they feeling less confident, I guess, in their faith? I don't sense that from the people I'm speaking to in the Jewish community. We've also been around the block when it comes to really difficult situations. And yet we're here and our communities are vibrant and active. So I don't see people questioning their belief in the importance of the tradition and the importance of community. People are very much longing to be able to come back together in actual community. That's what I'm hearing more than anything. Virtual communities are better than no communities, but it's sure not like sitting next to someone and singing with someone. You know, you can't sing with somebody over Zoom. Well, you can, but it's a little different. <laughs> it doesn't work. Uh, as, as a musician, I can attest to that. Yeah. I read something, I believe, from the Torah rabbi that said, do not isolate thyself from the community and its interests. Is that what you're saying? Very much so. That's from the Mishnah, the commentaries of Prasmanat Don't take yourself out of the community because the community is where we find strength. 
and the connection to people is where we find strength. And, and I think that it's interesting and important to see more people reaching out and finding a tremendous uplifting presence from celebrating a tradition that dealt with liberation from darkness to light. Mm. And uh, so that's the movement that I think people are looking towards. Okay. Dr. Celine, Ramadan is a month for people who may not know that. And there is fasting and praying every day. So you are really investing yourself in the tradition and the rituals and recommitting to the faith. Coming as it does at this time, is it actually helping people be stronger in their faith? Or is this a time for people, as I've asked the others, where they may be questioning or less confident in faith? Yes, Ramadan is often a time in the liturgical year for Muslims where people try to up what they've already been doing. So even people who have already been making their five daily prayers at the appointed times, they'll try to do even more during Ramadan. And oftentimes people who don't particularly pray during the year might pray a bit more during Ramadan. And even people who Uh, for instance, might not have a connection to Islamic ritual life, oftentimes they will still fast Ramadan. It's one of the the things that many people do, even if they consider themselves just culturally Muslim and not quite uh, religiously Muslim. And I I wonder, though, how these times are are affecting that, because there's less of a sense of an in-person community. So I think those of us who are accustomed to fasting and using Ramadan as this moment of spiritual rejuvenation, we're fed by the spirit of the month. Even if we can't be in in physical proximity, we can still log on and, for instance, hear the Quran recited every night from different mosques who are able to do virtual streaming. So there's a sense that we can still be very connected to the spiritual life of the month. A lot of ritual practice in in Islam is actually at the individual level. So many of us, particularly in the American context, are used to being very spaced out, if you will, from other Muslims, spaced out in the sense of distance. And so we're uh, somewhat accustomed to being able to keep on with our spiritual life, even when we are a smaller minority in the American context. Where I'm seeing the fear and the anxiety and stress is actually more in thinking about the long-term repercussions of this COVID-19 crisis. And in in particular, in the Muslim community, there is a fear that xenophobia will once again rear its head in the ways that it did in, in 2015 and 2016 in the lead up to that election. So I know that many of us are, are also concerned that we're, we're seeing anti-Chinese sentiments. And we know what we personally experienced four years ago. And I think a lot of us are feeling some anxiety and and concern and stress in terms of where this crisis will take us in terms of our civic fabric and our institutions of democracy. Are those people who are articulating that anticipatory fear of going to that place, looking to this moment in Ramadan to sort of shore up a feeling of strength in the community? Because I know that a, a part of the Ramadan experience also are those activities that, you know, look outward from the faithful to do the community kinds of interaction that Rabbi Summit spoke about. Exactly. And it's also a big time of giving for the Muslim community. And many of our institutions, this is the time, this is the month where they raise most of their operating costs for the year. 
this is a month where Muslims tend to be most generous uh, because they feel that deep connection to the spirituality of, of this time. So I think our institutions are really hoping that Muslims uh, will still continue to feel that spirit of generosity, even when their own bank accounts might be suffering a bit during this time. But we do have in Islam the idea that life is a test and that if you express gratitude for the blessings you have and you express your perseverance in in the times that are difficult, that that is the the ultimate way through. I was actually at an interfaith gathering on Zoom, and Psalms 118 was read, and essentially that is about you know finding oneself in a constricted place and um, being led uh, by the divine spirit into an open place, and and that's very much a, a spirit that's present in Islamic um, contexts as well. That sense that. When it's difficult, we persevere, we have gratitude for the blessings we do have, and we know that there will be an opening. I saw a note from the Quran that, verily, with the hardship, there is relief. Exactly. That, that is exactly the spirit that I'm pointing to. And actually, that verse in the Quran, it's repeated twice, back to back. And whenever that happens, that form of emphasis in, in Arabic rhetoric, it's a moment to have real confidence in that that's a verifiable promise. Hmm. That's my guest, Dr. Celine Ibrahim. She's a faculty member in the Department of Religious Studies and Philosophy at the Groton School and a former Muslim chaplain at Tufts University. Greg Epstein, humanist chaplain at Harvard University and MIT. A lot of people probably don't know that a survey last year found that the religious nuns, that means people with no religious affiliation, really make up the most people when you look at faith and spirituality and organized religion. So they're 23 percent in a survey last year. The next biggest group were Catholics that came in, number two, and then evangelicals were number three. But the biggest group is religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, just to be clear. They're not wearing any habits. uh, Exactly. Just yet. Although, you know, we could adopt that as a style if if, uh, if the sisters (laughs) would allow us uh, kindly, and I don't think they should. Um, (laughs) No. But, um, yeah, those numbers have really been growing. I've been uh, a chaplain at Harvard now since 2004, and it actually dovetails. I'm not taking credit, but it it dovetails pretty dramatically with the years that I've been there, that those numbers have been going up to the point where they are now. And we're still a a minority group. But yes, there's there's a lot of people out there who are not religious and and who are looking for their meaning and purpose and, and hopefully finding it. I'd say in most cases, finding it in other ways. So I found this statement from Humanists UK. I thought this was succinct, and I'd love you to respond to it. Humanists are people who shape their own lives in the here and now. We believe it's the only life we have because we believe it's the only life we have. So if it's incumbent upon the humanists to sort of figure it out themselves, what is the process by which you are thinking through this big issue, this pandemic, this crisis in this moment? Thanks. I I would make one slight amendment if I could uh, give my friends over at the UK humanists uh, a call. I mean, I, I, I have great friends over there, and I would say that we we shape one another's lives and meaning. Mm, mm. Um, that that the implication of the text that you just read is that it, it could at least be conceivable for an individual to shape the meaning and purpose and dignity of his or her life alone. And I don't believe that's possible for humanists or for anyone. We are profoundly interdependent. We are part of a, a single garment of destiny. We are all one uh, humanity, and 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 that really is something that I'm reminded of constantly with this 
crisis. Why wouldn't we be? So I would say that humanists to me are people who are looking to one another as well as looking within ourselves. And, and we have to do some of both. One has to look inside of oneself for, for strength and hope. But there are going to be moments, there's certainly moments for me where I look inside myself and I just don't have it that day. Uh, or that hour. And that's the time to turn outward to, to somebody else, to, to somebody you love, to somebody who's there to help, to a random stranger in the community, to to a book or a podcast, if that's what's really going to make you feel at home. I know of no fewer than four or five groups out there, including one that I'm a part of, that are studying the book The Plague, which is a novel by the philosopher Albert Camus, the Nobel laureate existentialist philosopher right now. And The Plague is a novel uh, set in the 1940s about an epidemic, which really comes to represent in the novel a pandemic, a viral contagion that's killing seemingly everyone in its path. And uh, the, the citizens of, in the novel, a uh, small city called Oran in uh, French Algeria, they're trapped there. They can't get out. They can't figure out how to eradicate this plague. And they're left to sort of fight for their lives and their culture as they're sort of trapped inside their, their homes. And the book is, you know, it's a profound work of philosophy. One critic called it a perfect work of philosophy. I don't know about perfect. I don't think there is any such thing. But it's sort of a sacred text that some humanists are using right now to, to help us think about where we get our strength and, and what we need to do for one another. What have you seen in the discourse as it's going across the cyber waves that really strikes you in this moment that seems to bring together the ethical piece of the humanist movement and also speaks to this yeah. moment? I, I've been doing a lot of virtual chaplaincy, uh, social media chaplaincy, even, you know, Twitter chaplaincy, you know, just just sort of following my students on Twitter. And sometimes we have beautiful conversations there and, and elsewhere. And it's funny because I've been spending the last year or two at, at TechCrunch being often a critic of technology and, and social media. And I remain a critic of a lot of it. But at the same time, you know, just the basic function of, of needing to talk to other humans is always going to be important. And if this is what it takes to get us that conversation right now, that's great. Look, I've had some students come to me and say, hey, I really am having an existential crisis right now. I, I really wonder if anything matters at all, if, if anything's objectively worthwhile in life. And it's a tough question, of course, but my approach has been to sit with them where they are and try to restrain the part of me that wants to rush in and solve their problem philosophically and say like, oh, well, have you read what Camus said about it? Blah, blah, blah. You know, because if if listeners say to this conversation, want to look that up, you know, they, they really can. And I think it does have good answers. But I think that a student like the one that I'm thinking of right now. Uh, maybe needed a place for herself, given her life, to be okay with the fact that that for some of us, we, we don't believe there's an objective meaning or purpose in life. We don't believe that there's any one reason why any of this is happening to us or why we should have meaning or purpose. For people like myself and students that I work with, that can actually be helpful too because it allows us to not try overly hard to come up with theological explanations that don't work for us and instead what we do is we try to see, well, is there enough in my life right now that, that gives me subjective meaning? You know, does fighting for justice for the people who are so tragically being overly impacted by this crisis, 
does that give me subjective meaning? You know, knowing that 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 black and other marginalized people in this country are really facing a totally different crisis from what I'm facing and, and need justice. Does it give me subjective meaning to, you know, check in with my mom more often to, to try to work a little harder to be sensitive with my wife and forgive myself or for, forgive her when, when we get into fights. Does that give subjective meaning? Does dialogue like this, where we get together with people who have very different beliefs than we do and, and find some common ground in our vulnerability, give us meaning? I, you know, I think it does. Hmm. Okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Reverend Gloria White-Hammond, co-pastor of the Bethel AME Church in Boston, Rabbi Jeffrey Summit, director of the Innovation Lab at Hebrew College, Dr. Celine Ibrahim, faculty member in the Department of Religious Studies and Philosophy at the Groton School, and Greg Epstein, you just heard him, humanist chaplain at Harvard University and MIT. And we're continuing an hour-long conversation about how Americans are turning to faith and seeking purpose during the coronavirus coronavirus pandemic. So I have a question for all of you, because as I've been reading and thinking about, first for those of you who are in organized religion, there are a lot of statements about God being in control. Dr. Celine, I saw that Omar Risi from the Islamic Center of Southern California did a sermon that startled people called Thank God for the Coronavirus. And he said it was a reminder that we are not in control and must always be dependent on God and be grateful for things. And I wonder how you respond to that. And that's a very basic principle of Islamic thought is that this is all contingent reality, that God is the only reality that exists, and that the life purpose for a Muslim is realizing that at all different levels, at the kind of deepest levels of one's being, that's the idea of surrender, essentially, is is that sense that we are contingent beings, that we make some choices, but most of the choices that we make, there's specific consequences for them. So it's a very fundamental principle in Islam, and there's a saying that is alhamdulillah in Arabic, and that means praise be to the divine. And you say that in good circumstances, you say that in bad circumstances, and that relationship of of the believer or or of the servant, if you will, doesn't change based on the condition of the, the world. And that's part of the equanimity, if you will, that Muslims are called to develop. And that's part of the quality of patient perseverance. And we can always work to better our circumstances in the material world. But for us, if we you know are taking seriously the idea that there's a metaphysical reality and unseen reality and a spiritual reality, that is ultimately our goal is to succeed in that realm of of life. And that looks different than success in the material realm. And so it's a a philosophy, if you will, of, of life and what gives life meaning and purpose. But certainly that fundamental idea that everything originates to God and that all things return to the divine is is a core tenant um, and part of when we say la ilaha illallah there is no god but god that principle encompasses the idea that there is a controller of the universe but does that mean that for followers of the faith that you just sort of wait passively or is there a responsibility for you to be active in your faith? I mean, does that get you off the hook, I guess, is what I'm saying. Um, Uh, Not at all. One of my favorite Arabic sayings is, 
And aqua means to tie something down, to secure something. It's also the word for rationality. So use your rationality, use your material means. And after you've done all that, then have tawakkul. And tawakkul means reliance and that sense of, of trust in the higher power. So we use our rationality, we work in the world, we use our material means, but then we have this quality of tawakkul, of reliance. Same question to you, Rabbi Summit. What does it mean that God is in control or we rely on God in this moment, but how to have expression in the faith then if you're an individual? How do you express yourself other than just waiting? Sure, Callie. I mean, I really believe, and in the Jewish tradition, we see God has created the natural world and God has created human beings. And human beings are given the opportunity to make choices. And in the Jewish tradition, every person has a good inclination and has an evil, a selfish inclination. And it's up to us to decide how we're going to act. We could create uh, societies where there's health care for people, for everyone. We could create societies where there's economic justice, or we could create societies where things are not skewed towards justice. What people do matters in this world. And while I'm not at all in a silver lining frame of mind, it's true that for many people, the experience of living through and leading through a crisis like this crisis is that it will become the refiner's fire that is going to shape our lives going forward. You know, there'll be a time when this will be over. And I want to be able to look back and say that I comported myself in a godly way. I comported myself well. I found ways to be value added to the lives of the people who I love and the people who came to know me on Zoom and through email. I want to be able to look back through this crisis and say that my tradition motivated me to live with courage. And I held out hope that we'd use the lessons that we're learning to think deeply and and to bring more love and compassion and to hope into these many worlds that we're experiencing and we're learning more and more about is we see how so many people are living through this crisis. So God has a role in this, but I've always believed the uh, expression, pray like everything depends on God, but act like everything depends on you. Hmm. Reverend Gloria, same question. There's a song that says, those who wait upon the Lord shall receive their wings. And if God is in control, does that mean I don't have work to do? Absolutely not. And again, we've seen this historically, that, that there is yet work to do. So that, And the work is on a couple of levels. One is the wisdom to take the steps that we've, we've been apprised of in terms of how to mitigate the risk, how to respond if you get the illness, and, and all of those things that we've been hearing about in terms of the public health issues. The other thing that is true, and Rabbi Jeff referenced this, that are the justice issues, that so much of what we're seeing with regard to the illness, the uh, issues around availability of resources to make diagnosis and allocation of resources in terms of treatment, a number of those are really justice issues, the kinds of disparities, and again, for especially, we're watching this for so many different populations who they're victims of the injustice that has existed prior to this pandemic that we're also seeing in the midst of the pandemic. And so much of the work uh, that 
God calls us to and equips us to do is to address these issues of injustice. So there's my personal responsibility in terms of mitigating my risk, not creating uh, risk for other people, and then it's my responsibility to address the, the justice issues. And I will say one of the things that has been particularly interesting and exciting is to see the way communities of different religious traditions and no religious traditions have come together to take responsibility around these justice issues. Coming up, we're continuing our hour-long conversation about finding meaning and strength through religious and secular communities in the midst of the pandemic. How do the people who are leaders in these communities themselves find meaning? That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. back. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. We're using the full hour for a roundtable discussion about COVID-19 and its impact on communities of faith and humanist communities. Joining me, Reverend Gloria White-Hammond, co-pastor of the Bethel AME Church in Boston, Rabbi Jeffrey Summit, director of the new Hebrew College Innovation Lab, and Dr. Celine Ibrahim, faculty member in the Department of Religious Studies and Philosophy at the Groton School and former Muslim chaplain at Tufts University, and Greg Epstein, humanist chaplain at Harvard University and MIT. So, I have a question that I think people who are out there trying to figure out for themselves using for those who believe their faith as a foundation, they look to you and they wonder, what do you who lead faith communities and you, Greg Epstein, who lead non-believer communities, think of as a way of anchoring yourself, finding your meaning in a moment of crisis like this? So, Greg, I'll start with you. What, what, what comes to mind for you? There's a couple thoughts that come to the forefront of my mind. One is, is sort of about where we get the philosophical strength to go through all of this. And the other is really what I'm angry about and the parts of the normal, quote unquote, world that we are separated from right now that I hope we don't go back to and that I think we need to fight harder not to go back to. So I guess I'll, I'll start with that. We were living up until now in a culture that uh, was pretty problematic in, in some serious ways. You know, we were living in a culture, in an economy, in, in a political civilization where millions and millions of people in just this country went into acute crisis because they missed a paycheck, where, you know, people are finding a way right now to, you know, to, to figure out what it is to to be human at, at the same time that we got to recognize there were horrible inequalities across our culture where, where people were getting richer and richer while the majority of this country was getting more and more insecure. And I guess what I would add to that um, is this idea that in the novel, The Plague, there's this notion that the world is very much like the the, the storyline of the plague. We we are living in a situation where you know where we're all mortal. We're all going to die. There's nothing we can do about that. And we we do have to find some kind of way to find to to make meaning of a situation like that. And for me personally, 
it's this idea that um, the work we do for one another, for our families, to make the world better and more just, to fight back against this tremendous imperfection that we that we experience in the world. That work is so worthwhile. It's so valuable. It doesn't solve all of our problems. It doesn't make them go away. It doesn't make us, you know, feel happy all the time. But if we're involved and invested in that work, I think it makes us feel uh, a sense of meaning that uh, is profound and and enough for me, at least. Rabbi Summit, what what is it that you are holding on to or that you think of for yourself to navigate through this time? Yes. You know, um, I'm thinking a lot of the words of the rabbi and philosopher Abraham Joshua Heschel, who taught that our spiritual tradition, quote, uh, he says, begins with a consciousness that something is asked of us. And I'm uh, thinking a lot about what's asked of me during this time as we um, navigate uh, uh, family and work and friendships and too much closeness if we're living with just a couple people, not enough closeness in our lives of social distancing. And and the the frame that I'm using to look at the world right now are the words uh, resistance of the heart against business as usual. Um, because I've had a lot of time to think about what business as usual has been like in our world. And so um, what I'm thinking about is how we could bridge these many, many differences in our society, political differences, ethnic differences, racial differences, uh, um, religious differences. Um, how do we expand our notion of the of community? Um, something that uh, a virus could teach us is that to a virus, you know, like we're we're all the same, and uh, and how do we actually use that vision of oneness to um, not to be at odds with each other, but to come together in the in the Jewish tradition and in, in the traditions that we're discussing today. Uh, we, it's taught that God is one. God is echad. Um, I don't think that means that um, Judaism is a monotheistic rather than a polytheistic tradition. Ultimately, it means that. But it, I think it means that um, we learn that God is found in oneness. God is found in the things that bring us together. God is not found in the things that force us apart and make us run into separate camps. And the more that we can practice um, and bring oneness into reality, into our world, uh, the more I think we'll have learned from this horrific experience. Reverend Gloria, and, and before you answer, I, I want to point out that you're both uh, a physician. You're trained as a physician and a minister. You're a person of faith. So I wonder if that has an impact on where you find your space and what you, what helps you now in this moment to, to navigate through this. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you're, you're correct, uh, Callie, in that I, I see myself as both of those, both, that is my identity. I'm not either, or I am both. And, and you're, and you're correct. I actually, when the call came out for 
retired physicians who would consider coming back. I absolutely did consider uh, going back into medicine. I, I have an active license, and but had a sense that in this particular season, that uh, I'm, I'm was called to serve in the context of supporting this community called Bethel, and uh, um, and I've I've re it's been great. It's been the most rewarding. This is the busiest season. I have never worked harder, but it's also been the most rewarding. And the way I, I think of it and the way we challenge our congregation to think of this work is we talk about the three dimensions um, of our lives as, as believers, is reaching up to God and seeing this time as I talk about redeeming this time uh, as uh, time to grow uh, closer to God. Uh, reaching into the community, what we call this household of faith, and then reaching out to the world. And again, that definitely requires us to look at the justice issues. Um, reaching into our community is, has been a tremendous learning. As you know, uh, typically ministry and medicine, are, are those are high-touch high uh, uh, disciplines, and we're learning more about how to be high touch in a metaphorical sense, how we use our words and our and our experience and the power of love to transcend both time and space. So even if we can't be there to hug each other, the the strength of our love it it, it can it can transcend. And that's just been a great opportunity to see people uh, growing closer in terms of their families. We over Easter uh, we can we had a family dinner uh, with relatives that I haven't honestly haven't talked to in years. More people are talking about those extended families that are coming together. And again, in terms of the congregation itself, we're learning to develop deeper levels of relationship. And uh, likewise, a, an important part of our work has been, again, specifically looking at equity in our particular neighborhood, which is where um, which is has had the highest number of. Uh, 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 deaths and, and morbidity, mortality associated with COVID-19. Um, and to think in terms of redeeming the moment, one of the there are a couple of texts that I draw on. One is is the Jeremiah 29 text where the 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 Israelites were in captivity and there was a hope that it could go away quickly. But the the message from the prophet was that we're going to be here for a little while. So redeem this time. Uh, figure out how to deepen your community, have your children, plant your gardens. And so what can we, what are the ways that we can grow in this time? We've learned a lot that we certainly will, we won't go back to all virtual online, but what we've seen is there's real utility in, in us doing more of this online work. And again, the, the equity issue. So there's the Jeremiah 29 text and the one I keep going back to is Psalm 23. Um, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death or darkness, God is with me. And going back to those landmarks that have seen us through hard times before can sustain us as we go through yet another valley of the shadow of darkness. Mm, thank you. Dr. Celine. I, I want you to answer the question as well and to also incorporate the fact that you have written a book about women and gender in the Quran and the leadership of women in the faith, in your faith. And I wonder if you are resting on some of that as you uh, uh, look to find what what anchors you in this moment. 
Yes, Kelly, I am so inspired by the words and wisdom of my colleagues and uh, being with people of, of wisdom has um, always been a part of my spiritual practice. There's a saying in Arabic that you seek out the company of the wise ones, hoping that, that you yourself will, will be able to imbibe some of that wisdom. So I'm, um, I'm learning as, as uh, a person who is kind of charting away as a woman in Muslim faith communities, figuring out uh, what that looks like. And, uh, Drawing on the wisdom of, of the Qur'an, uh, which does portray very powerful women who are uh, leaders in saving lives and leaders in uh, leading polities and through difficult times, uh, I'm really drawn to the idea of being of service as um, Rabbi Summit and as Chaplain Greg and as, as Reverend Gloria have pointed out that I find personally so much meaning in trying to figure out how to use my passions in a way that at the local level, at a wider level, it can be of service. And I think that if we do focus on using this time um, productively, and whether that's planting a literal garden or or tending the garden of the soul, um, I'm an optimist. I tend to say that we we will be able to, to come through this and you know, I'm not a knitter, but I think we can do a lot of knitting on our, our social fabric here to, to make sure that we have social safety nets in place um, for this time and, and better ones for, for future times as well. And, um, it's, uh, it's powerful to know that there are many other people out there who are thinking about how to use this time to increase our ability to be present with one another as a, as a common human family. Well, I have one last question for all of you, and that is this. When you look uh, past COVID-19 moment, and I know it's going to be a long time, I don't want anybody to think I, I don't understand that. We don't know how long it's going to be. What, is there one thing that you'd like to see us, those of us listening to this conversation and to you, um, be prepared in a way to greet that moment? What is there one thing you'd say to us? Um, this is what I'd like to see you'd be prepared, how I'd like to see you be prepared to greet the post-COVID-19 uh, moment uh, as we look to the future. Greg, you get to start. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about what it means to stay human uh, during this crisis and, and to be more fully human on the other side of it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't think we need to know all the answers right now. I, I think I think, you know, really reflecting on that that question, you know, knowing that we're, we're thinking about it together, we're talking about it is a start. Um, but um, but I do think that that we need a culture on the other side of this um, where we're more about our concern for one another and are caring for one another than we are about, you know, things like acquiring stuff and, um, you know, and, and, and material gain, um, that, you know, we're not going to change America completely. Um, you know, we're not going to, you know, overturn every aspect of capitalist society, but, um, a country in which we recognize that first and foremost, human life is about, um, our relationships with other human beings and what we do for them, what we do together to bring joy and compassion 
and meaning and love. Um, that's just something that that it, it needs more time. It, it, it should be our primary pursuit in life going forward. Thanks, Reverend Gloria. Well, one of the things that we've been talking about with our members is a, a wonderful work by a palliative care physician named Ira Bayok, where he is called the five things that matter most. And it, there are conversations that he found uh, helpful for people who are at end of life care and the kinds of conversations that they can have with loved ones. And those conversations are, uh, forgive me, I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. And goodbye. And of course, we're hoping that nobody is needing to say goodbye. But those other conversations, given that we're we're in these spaces and we're kind of and we're here and we're going to be here for a little while. Uh, my hope is that this would be an opportunity to really uh, appreciate the value of relationship, um, to to no longer take it for granted. To have some of those conversations that um, are, are, we never have because there's so much messiness in the context of our interaction, but could this be an opportunity, again, in terms of redeeming the moment, where we begin to break down some walls and build some longer-lasting bridges, deepen relationships by, I'm, I'm sorry, and please forgive me. And um, I'm letting go of some stuff that I think you did to me, and I'm forgiving you. And I, I want to pause to say thank you. So we oftentimes we don't express that gratitude to people. We just assume they'll figure it out. And uh, and reaffirming our love for one another. And that I'm hoping we'll we'll see more of that experience, more of that. I certainly that's happening in my family, and I think we're coming out of this with a deeper. Um, um, relationships with one another, and that is cause to celebrate. Dr. Celine? I get to spend most of my days with seniors in our online classes at Groton School, and they've really had their senior spring turned upside down, and now many of them are realizing that the start of their university won't be exactly the way they'd envisioned it. And so I think as much as we and lay plans for the future, there's this inherent sense of um, humility that you know we can aspire to things, we can plan, we can imagine how what we're going to do in this um, post-COVID-19 uh, situation here. Uh, but there is also tremendous benefit in just staying present in the here and now and appreciating what's in front of us, appreciating all of the relationships that we do get a chance to build, given that we're spending intensive time with with exclusively the same people, many of us, and I, so that that sense of of, of living in the the present moment and and attending to our inner life uh, to the extent that we can. Many of us are having to actually speed up and increase uh, our productivity. Those people on the the front lines have had no respite in in this matter, but for those of us who do have a bit more time on our hands, I think finding um, creative ways to make the best of, of this time, uh, rather than just looking towards the moment when we're going to be released to, to, to really embrace uh, what the present offers us. It's the wisdom I'm trying to impart to my 
my seniors. Rabbi Summit? I think that um, technology has served us really well during this crisis. Um, But I think it's very important when we come out of this uh, um, crisis to realize that our life is not on a screen and we won't find our life by looking there. I hope that we'll move from our technologies to um, valuing the holiness of human interaction, um, to learn and relearn how to listen to one another, how to choose our words thoughtfully and carefully, how to sing together, how to hold one another, how to eat thoughtfully together with connection, how to be with one another in silence, uh, not speaking, um, being kind to one another, and realizing that holiness is really found in face-to-face interaction. That's what I hope for after this crisis. Thank you all for joining me for a, a wonderful, thoughtful conversation. Thank you for hosting and, and thank you for the extraordinary work that it requires to, to maintain high quality broadcasting during this crisis. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to be together. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Reverend Gloria White-Hammond is co-pastor of the Bethel AME Church in Boston, the Schwartz resident practitioner in ministry studies at Harvard Divinity School, and a retired pediatrician. Rabbi Jeffrey Summit is the director of the New Hebrew College Innovation Lab, research professor in the Department of Music and Judaic Studies at Tufts University, and a senior consultant for Hillel International. And Dr. Celine Ibrahim is a faculty member in the Department of Religious Studies and Philosophy at the Groton School, former Muslim chaplain at Tufts University, and the author of her forthcoming book, Women and Gender in the Koran. Greg Epstein is humanist chaplain at Harvard University and MIT, author of the New York Times bestselling book, Good Without God, and contributor to TechCrunch. Well, that's it for this special one-hour edition of Under the Radar. We're on the web at wgbh.org, news under the radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Hannah Ubele and engineered by Dave Goodman. Melissa Rosales is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.